Uh, we're to begin this morning, and well, we're going to finish up real quick in chapter 6. We were studying uh, verses 15 to 23, a brief outline of the chapter I made up is uh, dying to live, <clears throat> alive to God, and then finally free from sin. We discussed the first two, and we're working on the third one, free from sin. We've already discussed verses 15 through 19. The, down at the bottom of the screen, verse 19, can you read that in the back? I'm trying to learn something about my font sizes. Okay. Uh, this is uh, what we discussed last week, so we can keep it in context. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Well, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, because you are a born-again Christian. Verses 20 through 23 for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were slaves of sin, past tense, at one time. Uh, you were enslaved by sin. And, of course, everybody is a slave to sin that's living in sin. Uh, we, we follow the path because it's, sometimes it's like an addiction. It's what we must do, what we want to do so badly. And we follow that particular course of action. When you were slaves of sin, when you were in sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to obey the law of righteousness. Before a person becomes a Christian, they don't attempt to please the Lord. There's no reason to. Uh, there's no attempt to walk in the path of righteousness. There's no reason to. I've already charted my course. I'm going a different direction. Uh, I'm, I'm living in sin. I'm, I'm enjoying my life. I like it the way it is. So I, I'm, I'm not obligated to follow the laws of God. Uh, I'm free from the laws of God. They're not a burden to me. Uh, I'm a slave of sin, not to righteousness. Imagine two masters, which there are in, in the world. You can call it sin. Uh, he's personifying sin. He does that all the way through the sixth chapter. He personifies sin, it's a person, and, and there's one of two masters he presents for our consideration. The one master is uh, sin, the other master is righteousness. Now all people, no matter who, all people serve one or the other, whoever we are. There's nobody that's not serving one or the other. Now I agree, the masses of people are, are enslaved to sin, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but there are some, like us, who have decided that we want Christ to be our master, or righteousness, the way of righteousness to be our master. Uh, and we make a decision. We're in between. This is what life's all about. This is what it all boils down to, making this one decision. That's why we're here. God made this whole complex system 
so that you and I could freely make a decision without being overpressed by either him or the world. And here we are in the middle. We're trying to decide what's best for us. Well, if you choose sin to be your master, which we did at one time, that was what we wanted to do. That's the way we like to live. Well, then righteousness, is, is, it doesn't bother you because it has no hold on you. I didn't worry about stuff like that. I didn't worry about turning the other cheek when I was a sinner. I did the very opposite. Instead of turning the cheek, I tried to break a cheek. It, it was just a, a whole different rule than it was when you become a Christian. You have, there's no, there's no pang of conscience for me to turn the other cheek. It never, ever bothered me that I didn't turn the other cheek. Instead, I struck back. I was never bothered by that until Righteousness became my master. Then, all of a sudden, it bothers me when I have to turn the other cheek. It bothers me because I don't want to, but I have to. Why? I'm a slave to righteousness. This is what I must do. Of course, we don't always do it. Sometimes we fall short. We commit the sin because we're, we're yet unstable because we're of, of weak faith, we commit the sin. And we realize what we've done after we've done it, and we beg God to forgive us, and he will. And then we go back living again. And we're going to be tempted again to turn the other cheek. But as we live, we're going to find it becomes easier and easier and easier to turn the other cheek. It's a process we go through. There's no switch flip. I wish there was, but it just doesn't work that way. It's an arduous process that we live through. So I choose sin to be my course of action, and righteousness, that's their thing. That's not my thing, and it doesn't haunt me. Well, on the other hand, you choose righteousness to be your master. Well, then you're, not, you're going to be free from sin. I have no obligation to sin. I'm not bound to sin. When I don't sin, I don't feel guilty. Why? I'm free from sin. I don't have to sin. I'm not obligated. I have no reason to by obligation or by being enslaved to sin. I'm free. I've cut, I've cut that cord, and it doesn't have a hold on me anymore. That's what Paul's saying in verse 20. And then he asks, oh, what fruit? did you have then, back in those days, the days when you were living in sin? What fruit did you bear in the things of which you are now ashamed? I didn't turn the other cheek. I would do my best to try to break a cheek. Well, I'm not, I'm not proud of those things any longer. I was at one time, but not any longer. Those things are past tense. Now we're ashamed of the sins we committed. How many things are we ashamed of from our past life? There are so many things I've done in my life, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell anybody. The only person I ever told was B.R., and I told her before we got married, if there's anything you want to ask me, anything at all, you ask me before we get married. Because once we're married, don't ever ask me a question again. I don't want to talk about the past. Why? I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of a lot of things that I've done. 
and I tried to steer away from it. What fruit was there? Well, there was no fruit. There was a momentary pleasure, yeah, there was that. But how long does that last, five minutes? And then it's gone. You got momentary pleasure, and then poof, it's gone. <clears throat> and what do you have left, shame? If you ever change your life, it's just shame from then on. This is what Paul's trying to get across to his readers. When you were in sin, you were obliged to sin, you were free from righteousness. But what was the benefit? What did you really get out of it? What do you have to show for yourself after you've done the things you've done when you were slaves of sin? The end of those things, and we know, is death. There was no fruit, momentary pleasure, yes, but in the final analysis, eternal death, and we know that. So uh, we made a prudent choice by becoming a slave to righteousness rather than sin. It was a good thing to get out of. Uh, then now we, we, we work diligently uh, trying not to sin when we're tempted. We don't have to. We're not enslaved to it any longer. We try to avoid it. But now, verse 22, now having been set free from sin, we're not obliged. We're obliged to live righteously, but we're not obliged to commit sin because we have left that master and now we serve another master. Now at this time, we've been set free from sin. We have by our own volition become slaves of God. And now we have fruit that which we produce is holiness and in the end, we receive everlasting life. The choice between the two paths of life uh, is very obvious, which one is by far the greater, uh, because the end result is death or life. <clears throat> Depending on that one choice, one choice, that just blows my mind, one choice. The wages of sin is death. The wage is something we earn. Like when you go to work, uh, your, your supervisor doesn't give you money. Uh, he owes you money. That's your money. You worked it out. He's obligated to give it to you. It's a wage. And that's what sin is. It has a wage, something a person has earned. And what have they earned? They've earned eternal death. There's nobody in hell going to blame anybody else um, justifiably. Because ultimately, we all make our own decision, each person. Uh, I can't make yours, you can't make mine. We, we make our own, we choose what we shall do. And the person who chooses to live a life of sin has no one to blame should they perish in the devil's hell. But the gift, this isn't something that's earned it's a gift. It's not a wage. It's a gift. It's something uh, that God has graciously given to us. He's not obliged to give us anything. He does it because he wants to. He loves us. Uh, and because he loves us, he wants to bestow this gift upon us. And he shall, provided we make the right choices that he set before us. The gift of God is eternal life. 
in, that's always so important, uh, in Christ Jesus. That's where eternal life is to be found. It's in the Christ. Uh, you, you, imagine the Olympics, if you will. Uh, people get in the Olympics and, and they run a race. Let's say they run, a, I don't know much about it, let's say they run a 100-yard dash and uh, some guy gets the gold medal. Well, come to find out, there's another guy. He was about 50 miles away. Uh, he was uh, working that day, and um, he didn't go to the races. But come to find out, he could run faster. He could run faster than the guy that won the gold medal. Why doesn't he get the gold medal? Well, he was in the wrong place. In order to get the gold medal, you've got to be in the arena. It doesn't matter that he could run faster. He had to be in the right place at the right time, and he wasn't. That's the importance of being in Christ. Salvation is for those in Christ. He is the Savior of the body, which is the church, and that's where salvation is found. A person may be very good. They may be very godly. They may be very holy, but if they're not in Christ, they can't qualify for eternal life because salvation is in Christ. It's a little, it's a little phrase, but it carries a big, big meaning, and it's, uh, it's important that we understand that. Well, that's the end of that section. Any questions over chapter 6? Chapter 6 isn't too hard. First few verses get a little complicated, but it's not really too hard. Chapter 7, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who do know the law of Moses, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Well, everybody knew that uh, as long as the, the, the Jew uh, uh, lived he was in subjection to the law of Moses. Now, the phrase, the way it's been translated in the English Bible, I think they made a mistake. Uh, and I'm not the only person, other people do as well, not, not a whole lot They say anything about it, but there's a few that have. Let me show you what I mean. In Greenfield's notes on the Greek New Testament, he translates this verse, the law has dominion over a man as long as it enforced and no longer. You see, it's about the law, not necessarily the man. It's about the law as the master. And in, in the context that we're studying, we're not discussing uh, the death of the, of the law. We're discussing the death of the other individual, okay? The way it, I mean, the way it reads is that the law has dominion over the man as long as man lives. But the ideal is the law has dominion over a man as long as the law is a forcible law. What happens if a law ceases to be a law? Well, then it no longer has dominion over a man. This is the context that, that Paul is, is addressing. Think about it as we proceed into the next two verses because he's going to draw an example from uh, uh, life with regard to marriage and divorce. In Colossians 2.14, uh, Paul wrote that the Lord wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was, con uh, that was against us, which was contrary to us. He wiped it out, <coughs> having nailed it to his cross. In other words, the, no the law 
came to an end. The law died. It died when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So it's the law that's under consideration, not the man. Okay? The law has dominion as long as the law is in force. But once the law ceases to be in force, the law no longer has dominion. Remember the context. He's writing to Jews. These are Jews who feel like they're obligated to keep the law of Moses. This is the way they were raised. Some of them have been living this way 50, 60, 70 years. That's all they've known. And, and they don't understand how they can be a Christian and just disregard the law of Moses. And Paul's making an argument here <clears throat> that the law is only uh, master as long as the law is alive. And he goes forward and... Uh, he talks about the, the marital relationship. For the woman has a husband is bound by law to her husband. Uh, I got bound by law. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chain him up here in a minute. The woman who has a husband is bound by the law of Moses to her husband as long as he lives. Well, we know that. We all know that. Uh, like Mama used to say, when you get married, you're married, you're married. Okay? Under the law of Moses, when you got married, you were to remain married to that person until you died. One or the other died. And then at that time, the law uh, would no longer be applicable because that person was gone. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Okay? When the husband dies, the woman that's left is free from the law. It is no longer uh, 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 binding her to anything. Now keep in mind, this is the law of God we're talking about, okay? You got to separate between the law of God and the law of the state of Tennessee, for example. They're not the same uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, Tennessee says you are divorced and she goes off and she marries this dude over here okay what's the situation he says she will be called an adulteress why because she's still bound by the law in the eyes of God she's married to the man he married her to and she was bound to that particular law so since she is married to the first husband, her marriage, according to the state of Tennessee, to her second husband is inapplicable because she's bound by the law of Moses, to which she's in subjection to. But, on the other hand, if her husband were to die, <coughs> she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress though she has married another man. It's not hard to understand. It really isn't. It's hard to accept. But it's not hard to understand. But Paul's not trying to teach us about the law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's not his point. He said, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's using the law to make a point. We all know how the law works. Now then, he's going to make his argument. Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law 
through the body of Christ. Uh, you died, you were born again. That you may be married to another, bound to another. That other is Jesus, who was raised from the dead. That we should bear fruit to God. There's two things that happen really with the law. Number one, uh, the law's dead. It's no longer applicable on the earth any longer. God does not recognize the law of Moses <coughs> after, <coughs> after Christ was crucified. He no longer uh, <coughs> recognizes it as law. Uh, but on the other hand, the argument he's wanting to make here is that when a person uh, is crucified, buried, raised from the dead, they are free, because they're a born-again person, they are free from the law that once bound them. They're a new creature in Christ. They are free to be married to another, and that, of course, is Christ, the body of Christ being the bride of Christ. Okay? You go from one to the other. The law is not applicable. It died, it, it died because it was no longer applicable, but also when, when, when the converted person dies and is buried and raised, because they died, they are now free to marry another, and that, of course, would be Christ. He uses the example of marriage, divorce, and remarriage to make his point. This is the point he wants to make. Uh, you people are free to marry Jesus, to no longer be obligated to the law, but now be obligated to him who is your new husband. And that's the way the scriptures talk about us. We are the wife of Christ, and we are to be faithful to him just like a wife is supposed to be faithful to her husband. We learn a lot of lessons about our responsibility to Christ through the marriage situation, but uh, of course we also learn the same lessons through uh, explicit statements. For when we, were, when we were past tense, notice the tenses, when we were in the flesh, when we did serve sin, that's what in the flesh means, <clears throat> the sinful passions which were aroused by law, <clears throat> this is a little bit difficult to understand. Um, that in the flesh, the sinful passions, he, once again, he's personifying sin. Okay, sin is, is, is like a person. And this person called sin is aroused by this law. You never knew there was a law. And, and you were living your life and suddenly you find out that there is a law. And when you recognize that law, sin is aroused within us. Our sinful passions are aroused within us. God said no. And because he said no, this arises, arouses our passions. They wake up from their slumber. The law doesn't produce sinful passions. And this is where some people make a mistake. He's not saying the law produces sinful passions. What the law does is reveal the passions that are sinful. And because these things are forbidden activities, sin is aroused by that fact. In verse 7, he'll say, I would not have known sin except through the law. I wouldn't have known what sin was 
except I come to a knowledge of the law. And then I could find out. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. As a successful Pharisee, Paul was probably uh, a very wealthy man. And he might have been, I wouldn't doubt it at all, a very covetous man. Did he feel any pangs of guilt because he was a covetous man? Not at all. Why? Because there was nothing telling him he couldn't be covetous. But when he came to a recognition of what God's law was, his whole world turned upside down on him. And he said, the only reason I know what covetousness is is because the law told me. So now, at one time he was ignorant, he was free from guilt. Now he has knowledge and he feels guilty for the way he is, contrary to the divine nature, of course. In Romans 3 and 20, Paul say, by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law, we come to know what sin is. We wouldn't know what sin was if the law didn't tell us. If there were no law, we would be living by our instincts, our passions. We would do what, we, what felt good. We would do what we wanted to do. Uh, most people in that, in that kind of a life, uh, they, they call it, you know, I would follow my bliss because I have nothing telling me that what I'm doing is wrong. I feel no guilt. The only time I would feel guilt is if I didn't do what I thought I ought to do. When you live in a jungle, you feel like anyone who attempts to take your life, they forfeit their life. In other words, if someone attempts to take your life, that gives you the right to take them out. Because it's better that you live and they die than they live and you die. So you strike first. And you feel no guilt. What do you feel guilty about? You did nothing wrong. There's nothing to tell you that it's wrong to strike first. So you strike. But then a law comes along. It's a law that came down from our creator. And he says... Uh, you shall not kill, or you, he said you shall not do murder. I've lived by no law, now suddenly there is a law. And because there is a law, I'm affected by guilt, and this, these passions within me start to arise. And they can arise in a, a variety of different ways but it stirs up the passions within. That's what Paul's saying. The law doesn't produce sin. It arouses the passions, and the passions lead to sin. <clears throat> Sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. They were always there. We were always governed by nature. That's how we lived before we became Christians. We were governed by nature. Uh, it, it was... Um, Survival of the strongest. Whatever you want to look at it, you, 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 you figure out your own way to live. You chart your own course. Paul could go into the house of, of, a, of a family. He could, he could grab the wife by the hair of the head. He could drag her out into the street, throw her into a wagon, go back in and get her children, 
dragged them out into the street, throw them into a wagon, and he felt nothing. Why? Because there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. He wasn't violating the law. He was fulfilling the law in his mind. These people were blasphemers, and blasphemers are supposed to be put to death, and that's what he was doing. He felt no guilt whatsoever. And then one day, he encountered the law of God, and it forbade him from taking the lives of such people, from persecuting such people, from treating people in such a manner and he felt the guilt. And then the passions arose. And he struggled with the passions. He didn't become a Christian immediately because he ran into law. He fought it, just like we all did. We fought the guilt when we discovered that what we were doing wasn't right. When we started thinking about God, uh, we started thinking about eternal life and eternal death. When we started considering the possibility of becoming a child of God, we considered our guilt, our flaws. And though we didn't feel wrong, now we're suddenly being told that we were wrong. And we wrestle with it. We fight with it. And we don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out of it. This is what Paul is leading up to in this chapter. This is his fight. I believe, uh, I, I believe very, very much, as a matter of fact, that he's talking about himself, the battle he fought before he became a Christian, and he's talking to his fellow Jews. He knew, I know what you're talking about, folks. I know what it's like. Look what I went through. These sinful passions were at work in our members uh, to bear fruit to death. That was the ultimate conclusion. Paul's referring to sinful passions being at work when we were in the flesh. These passions were at work when we were in the flesh. But when we became a Christian, when we were in the spirit, what happened? Those sinful passions just, they went away. Did they go away? They don't go away. That's one of the problems we deal with. With the God, they did go away, but it's best that they don't go away when we look at the big picture. Though we are now in the spirit, those sinful passions are still at work, though to a lesser degree. We're no longer a slave to them. We're a slave to Christ, to righteousness. But that's not to say that sometimes those old passions arouse, or arouse us, I should say. Things that we did in the past that weren't right, sometimes we feel them again. And it sounds pretty good. We ponder those things. We miss those things. And we call that temptation. How else can we explain our temptations and sins as Christians? As Paul taught in 1 John 1 and 8, 10, and chapter 2 and verse 1. Um, as John taught, I mean. We, uh, we are still tempted by those same temptations, though the strength of those temptations are not near as great as they once were. Now we have the ability, the wherewithal, 
to overcome those temptations because now we have Christ fighting for us and we can withstand them if we will. Sometimes we don't for whatever reason. Sometimes we don't. We commit sin. Uh, shame on us. But we can withstand them, not like it used to be. But now having been delivered from the law, we're no longer under the law, it's dictates or obligations. We have died to what we were held by so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The difference between the law of Moses and the law of the spirit of Christ is, uh, is radically different. Um, the law of Moses was uh, an obligation that a person had to fulfill uh, without error. If you're going to be justified by law, and that's what the law of Moses offered, uh, if, you, if you live without sin, you can have eternal life. There, there's no savior. There, there's, there's, there's no other option, it's up to you. You gotta follow the law and follow the law perfectly. And then you could go to eternal life. But no one ever did. And if you, if you failed to keep the law, now you've got sin staring you in the face. The death penalty is staring you in the face. And the same death penalty is going to stare you in the face in the day of the judgment. And you are without hope because no, there's nothing coming to your defense. You had the opportunity to live. You blew it. Now the only thing that remains is eternal condemnation. That's why we say we live on death row until we obey the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're to live in the newness of the letter, the, the spirit rather, the difference being, we have a law, we have a law to follow, but now we have a support from heaven that when we fail, and we will fail, but when we fail, we have the grace, the mercy of God that comes to our rescue, that understands our dilemma, that is willing to forgive us of our sins and let us have eternal life. We have what the old law never provided. We have in Christ. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for that very purpose. We're to serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We, we are out from under law. And that's the end of chapter 6. Any questions over that? It's not too hard to understand, I think, for most Bible students. Uh, that's the first bell, isn't it? We might get a little bit here. Uh, the second section, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. The law doesn't make us sin. The law... Uh, doesn't arouse the sin. Sin is aroused because there is a law. There's much difference. The, 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 the blame, if you will, belongs to the sin, not to the law. 
On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness, covetousness unless the law had said, <clears throat> you shall not covet. That's when I found out that it was wrong. How was I supposed to know it before I heard that? But sin, uh, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me, <clears throat> sin's in charge again, personified as a person, this guy named Sin went to work within me, producing all manner of evil desire when I came into contact with law. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Apart from the law, there's no knowledge of sin. Why would I feel guilty? I don't even know it's a sin. Apart from the law, there's, sin was dead. It's dormant. It has no effect. <clears throat> but sin is, and what he's talking about in context is covetousness. This covetousness that Paul felt uh, took opportunity by the commandment that you shall not covet, and, and, and that command produced in me, or sin rather did, all manner of evil desire. It was the commandment that aroused sin. Uh, Paul um, enjoyed being covetous, but when he met the command that forbade it, he felt guilt. If this is true, if this is truly the will of God, he felt guilt. If it's wrong to be covetous, and he is a covetous man, he felt guilt by it. It produced in him all manner of evil desire. Uh, people call it forbidden fruit. Psychologists, psychiatrists, they call it the, the, the passion for the forbidden fruit. The desire to do what we're not supposed to do. Uh, people cheat at work all the time. Men and women cheat. Uh, why do they cheat? One of the primary reasons is excitement. It's exciting. It's exciting to venture into a situation that's dangerous, okay? And, and, and people are aroused by that prospect. And a lot of times people get involved in fornication or adultery because um, they're aroused by the circumstances, by the possibility of being caught. It's, a, it's a, an exciting experience. And once you've had it, you go back for it again and again and again, okay? It's, it's sin that arouses the evil desires. It's the, it's the desire for the forbidden fruit, much like uh, Mother Eve, when she wanted the forbidden fruit. Well, it looked good. Well, all the fruit looked good. Give me a break. Well, what, really, what was it? Well, God said don't eat it, for one. And number two, the, there was a lie attached to it that promised her eternal life, or to be as wise as God, rather. And she jumped on that bone. She was so intrigued by that prospect that she disobeyed God and was a partaker of that fruit. Uh, forbidden fruit uh, can seem like the sweetest fruit of all. And uh, most uh, all human studies um, acknowledge forbidden fruit as being a exciting factor. Sin taking occasion by the commandment, this is verse 11, deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Uh, you, you, you're not to covet. I'm covetous. You're not to covet. I'm a dead man. I realize I'm a dead man when I realize the law. Sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. Verse 13, he'll say, sin was producing death in me through what is good, that is the word of God. 
so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. Sin, uh, we, we wonder so many times uh, how Satan uh, operates in leading us uh, into temptation. And ultimately, he hopes uh, into sin. Uh, he knows us. He knows our passions. He knows our desires. We, we live in one world. We dream of another world. The world we live in, we touch, we feel, we smell, we taste. The world we, we read of, we, we, we think about. And sometimes, because of that physical connection to the world in which we live, sometimes the world has greater attraction to a person than the one that lays out there in the future somewhere and then under our breath if it really exists, okay? And there's a severe temptation. Satan knows all that and he uses it uh, to his advantage in our bad fortune. We'll stop here. <clears throat> what is this? Verse 8. We'll stop here, and uh, God willing, we'll take up a verse 8 or 9 next week.